So we're ending our series in the Psalms by looking at one of the last chapters in the Psalter. We spent this summer learning about lament, about the grace of God, about the faithfulness of God. And this morning, we're going to be reminded about the salvation of God and how that salvation informs and directs the life of God's people. Psalm 148 sits at the end of the book of Psalms, and if we're going to be able to understand its message, then we need to understand the message of the entire Psalter. As I've mentioned, I've preached an entire sermon on this, but to give us a quick summary, I'd like to read what Bible teacher Shara Dramala from The Bible Project says. She, she describes the structure of the book of Psalms like this, and I have a slide for this. The book of Psalms is divided into five sections or books. The first two sections of the Psalter explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. And finally, the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness, and this is where we find Psalm 148. If we understand the Psalter as the story of Scripture, then the five-part conclusion of praise for God's faithfulness is a call for us to worship God because of what he's done, what he's continuing to do, and what he will do in and through Christ at the end of the age. The salvation of God in Christ through the Spirit is a past, present, and future reality that when meditated upon has no other rational response but worship. No other rational response but worship. Worship. So that's where we're heading this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 148. It'll also be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along in your bulletin as well. Now, the psalm itself, Psalm 148, it's broken up into these two parallel sections, verses 1 through 6, calling for praise from the heavens, and verses 7 through 14, calling for praise from the earth. Now, before we jump into our text, I want to share a little bit, I mean a very little bit, about ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Like very little. Like I'm not going to go super into depth. Because it comes up in our psalm. If you remember from Genesis 1, before God brought order to the chaos, the text says that the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And, and so the deep is a reference to the chaos of the sea a place unfit for humanity. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's what the text says. A few verses later, we read that God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so this expanse or, or this, this firmament or this vault separates the water from the waters. And, and you might be reminded right now, as I'm doing this, of a story that we read about in the Exodus, right? Where Moses divided the Red Sea so that the people of Israel can walk through on dry ground. It says, it says, And God made the expanse and separated the waters from the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. God called the expanse heaven. This was day two. 
On day three, the text talks about the waters under the heavens and how those waters were gathered together in one place so that dry land would appear and the waters under the waters would be called seas. In other words, the creation account teaches us about how God created a space for humanity to dwell. Away from the dangers of the deep and away from the chaos. In a sense, the creation story is a salvation story. And and follow what I'm saying here, right? Because if it's similar to what happens in the Exodus, where the waters were divided and the people walked through on dry land, God is creating that space for all of humanity to live on dry land. And so now we have a space where we can live and thrive and, and flourish as humanity, a place that, we, that wasn't available to us prior to creation. You guys tracking with that? So the creation account teaches us how God created a space for humanity to dwell away from the dangers of the deep, away from the chaos. And I bring that all up because our passage this morning, it talks about the heavens, It talks about the deep. It talks about the earth or the land. And it talks about a bunch of other things that should draw our attention back to Genesis 1. And so the point is that Psalm 148 is a psalm of praise, but it's also a song of creation encouraging us to look around and take notice of the fingerprints of God that are all over the place and a story of salvation about how God created a space for humanity to dwell in safely. Right? So that's, that's just like some background information before we jump into the meat of this text. Another thing that I noticed as I was working through this, because what I do when I prep for a sermon is I, I sit there with the text and I just make observations. I highlight things, I circle things, I underline things, I look for connections, I look for interesting sort of nuances. Like I, I spend a lot of time. And one thing that stood out to me that I thought was just so fascinating, if you look at our psalm, you might see that there are both inanimate objects and animate beings being called to worship. But what I thought was interesting, what I thought was interesting about that was the fact that the animate or intelligent beings, they frame the passage with the highest forms of intelligence being listed first and last, angels and humanity. Now, maybe this is nothing, but I also found it fascinating that the humblest of the intelligent beings are the last to be listed the elderly and young children. God has a way of elevating what the world judges to be weak and worthless. God has a way of elevating what the world deems weak and worthless. And I think there's a word in here for both our younger generations and our older. For those who complain about kids these days, the scriptures are calling them to worship. And the apostle Paul rebukes those of us who despise or or look down on our youth. In the same breath, those who look at the older generations as having nothing to offer, the book of Proverbs teaches us that gray hair is a crown of glory. And so that's just, I got a lot more amens for that one. (laughs) What, What was that? Amen, yeah, amen. I mean, I got a couple, but, you know, not as many as some of us. But that's a crown of glory, so you can't be offended at that joke. All right, that was all for free. We're going to jump into our passage this morning. I just thought those were interesting observations as I was working through the passage this week. So verses 1 through 4. I got a little pep in my step this morning. I'm not really sure why, so bear with me. 
Verses 1 through 4, Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. So the text begins with this phrase, praise the Lord. It's a command. It's an imperative. The text is, is, is commanding us, demanding of us, worship Yahweh. Worship the covenant-keeping God. Worship the creator. The words in Hebrew are literally hallelujah. It's where we get our word hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise your covenant-keeping God. Then the psalmist directs his gaze toward the heavens or the sky. The word for heavens is the same word just for the sky, right? You look up, you see clouds. Those are the heavens. And he calls for both the heavenly beings who are operating in the spiritual realm, um, the angels, the armies of God, that's what host means, to worship their creator. And he's also calling on those luminaries from Genesis 1, verses 14 through 19, the two great lights and the stars to praise and worship their creator. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, praise him. And then verse 4 talks about the highest heavens. And this is cool because this is probably a reference to the place of God himself, the holy of holies in the cosmic temple that is all of creation. And so the psalmist is looking up and he's looking at what he could see and then he's looking at what he can only imagine and he's crying out, worship Yahweh, praise him, hallelujah. In Spurgeon's Treasury of David, he quotes Dutch theologian, theologian Herman Venema, who, who beautifully captures the wonder of what's going on in these verses. And I have a slide for this. The verses sublimely traverses the immensities which are the home of the most exalted dignities who wait on deity. And then it descends to the firmament where the meteors flash forth and where the heavens stoop to lift the clouds that aspire from the earth. And the idea sustained is that all these vast realms, higher and lower, are one temple of unceasing praise. That's just good, right? That's so good. In other words, from the sky above, through the ever-expanding universe, and, and even right there, right? Like, and I don't know much about space, but from what I understand, it's getting bigger. And that's, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. And, and the psalmist is saying, as the universe expands, there's just more to praise God with. There's more to praise God with. And so, so from the sky above, through the ever-expanding universe, and into the very dwelling place of God, all of it is crying out, hallelujah. All of it is crying out, hallelujah. And the reason the heavens cry out, the reason why the psalmist says, let them praise the name of the Lord, right? It says that right in verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, is because verses 5 and 6 tell us something. For he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. A little Bible reading trick. When you see that word for at the beginning of a sentence or the beginning of a phrase, sometimes it's helpful to just read the word because. 
Right, so check this out. Let them praise the name of the Lord because he commanded and they were created and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. So why does God, why does the psalmist say, let them praise Yahweh? Because they owe, owe, owe their very existence to God. He commanded and they were created. And not only did he command and create them, but in verse 6, it tells us that he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And so let them praise the name of the Lord because he is a creator. He is the creator. But there's something really fascinating going on here. There's a new creation promise embedded in these verses. And if you were reading these words while sitting in exile under the thumb of foreign kings, which is precisely how the first hearers or readers of the book of Psalms would have been hearing these words, they were in exile, then what you're hearing and what I hope all of us are hearing is a word about the wonder and beauty of a God who keeps his promises. The wonder and beauty of a God who keeps his promises. Sin, death, exile, the brokenness of this world, they do not have the last word. They do not have the last word. The God we serve not only created the ever-expanding universe, but he also sustains it. The Apostle Paul understands that promise-keeping God to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, and I have a slide for this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's good news. By simply looking up, by simply looking up, we are reminded that God in Christ has never and will never take his hands off the steering wheel. Which means that whatever it is that we might be going through, whatever storm we find ourselves in, it's not because God has lost control. It's not the reason. Now, I won't presume to tell you why God allows you, allows what he allows. I don't know the mind of God. None of us know the mind of God. But I can promise you, because scripture makes this promise, that he walks with us in the midst of it. And as he walks with us in the midst of it, he is using it to make us look more and more like Jesus. Which means... Which means, as we walk through those valleys of the shadow of death, as we wrestle with the trials and tribulations of this world, and God cares for us in the midst of it, conforms us more and more to the image of his son, that means he is equipping us and conforming us into a being that is much more able to love our neighbors. Like That's where it all kind of goes to. 
right? The, the more we walk through suffering and we acknowledge God as we walk through suffering, right? Because there's two ways to walk through grief. There's two ways to walk through suffering and pain and trial, right? We can either walk through it and grow bitter towards God, or we can walk through it and acknowledge that God's with us in the midst of it, carrying that cross side by side with us. And if we acknowledge it to be the latter, then he's conforming us to the image of his son, which means we're becoming more like Jesus, which means that we are becoming more equipped to love those we come in contact with who are also walking through trials. Like that's how the logic of the gospel works. We have to pick up our crosses. There has to be death. There has to be pain. In fact, the apostle Paul tells us that we will only be glorified provided we suffer with Jesus. Right? You, you track that like there's, there's a contingency here. We actually have to allow ourselves to walk through that suffering through the lens of the suffering that Jesus walked through. It's, it's you know, like one, one theologian, um, I think it was John Piper, I think he wrote a whole book or a pamphlet or something called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Right? And, and there's, the, the, the whole idea behind that is is, is don't waste the trials that God has placed before you. Allow him to use it. Allow him to conform you more and more to the image of his son so that you become more like Jesus. And to become more like Jesus means that we start looking like the guy we read about in the Gospels, the one who entered into the pain of others, the one who cared for the broken, the one who wasn't afraid to get, to get, to get other people's sin on him, so much so that he died for it. That's what he's trying to do with us. And sadly, like maybe not sadly, right? Just matter-of-factly, it really only happens through, through, through pain, through suffering. And, and I think we all know that because I think we've all experienced how much more we depend on God when we're going through it. As opposed to when things are just going swimmingly and we're just like, yeah, you know, I... I said a couple of our fathers this morning, I'm good, right? Right, like, no, there's something that happens to us when we're suffering. There's something that happens to us if we allow it to happen to us properly, right? right? And, and here's the thing, right? We need each other for that because sometimes when we're walking through the pain, walking through the suffering, we forget that we need to recognize, we, we forget that God's with us. Like, we just forget because it hurts so much. And that's what our brothers and sisters are able to do for us to remind us that God walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us. He's there. He's there. His rod and his staff, they guide us. And we forget that. That's why we, that's why we, we can't forsake meeting together, right? Because we literally need to be reminded of the gospel. And we need to be reminded that it's not a cakewalk. Because we want it to be so badly because, because that just feels better. But God... Oh, God just works so beautifully in the midst of chaos. He does, right? He created in the midst of chaos, right? If we, if we launch back to Genesis 1, what was the Spirit of God doing? He was hovering over the chaos waters. He brings order to the chaos. Anyway, that's went off on a tangent there, but I, I, think it was, I think it was necessary. Let's keep going. The psalmist now starts looking at the world around him. He can't simply keep his head in the clouds and pretend that everything is okay. Look at verses 7 and following. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, 
Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. So this call of praise, he's done talking to the heavens. Now he's talking to the earth. He's talking to the land. And he's directing this command towards towards the world around him, towards the world around him. And notice what he sees. He sees great sea creatures and all deeps. Another translation is sea monster or sea dragon. And we already know what the deep is, the chaos of the sea. And so as the psalmist looks around, he sees danger. You, you, You catch that? He sees danger. Look what else he sees. He also looks around and and he sees fire and hail, snow, and and maybe a better translation is, is smoke rather than mist, and stormy winds. In addition, he sees wild animals, kings of the earth. Again, what does he see? Danger. And 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 like think about this, right? Like Maybe like, like, Pastor John, what are you talking about? Kings of the earth. How is that? Well, I don't know. Let's look at history. Have the kings of the earth always been, you know, benevolent rulers and dictators? I don't know. History tells a very different story. And if you're living in exile, which all of us are, but if you're reading this, you're the original hearers, you're living in exile, you're under the thumb of a foreign king who kicked you out of your own land. And so, yeah, the idea of kings, man, that's, that, that, should, that should make us tremble a bit, right? Wild animals, he sees. That should make us tremble. How many of us are, are out in the wilderness hanging out with, with lions and tigers and bears, right? Like, we're not doing that. I think I saw you say, oh, my, is that right? <laughs> right? Because those things are dangerous, So he's looking around, he's seeing all this stuff, and he's commanding them, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But he also sees refuge. He also sees these beautiful echoes of God's very good creation, mountains and hills, fruit trees and cedars, livestock, young love, the wisdom of age and the joy of childhood. The psalmist is commanding all of these things to worship Yahweh, to worship Yahweh. And then I go back to the kings of the earth. Because we don't see them worshiping him. In fact, I don't think any of us can imagine a world where the kings of the earth would ever worship Yahweh. And so I start questioning, like, like, bro, this is is a pipe dream. This is a pipe dream. Psalm 148 is a pipe dream. So I recently started teaching part-time at my son's school. Um, I'm teaching Bible at Ambassador uh, Christian Academy. And this past week, we were looking at the story of King Herod in, in the Gospel of Matthew and how when he learned of the birth of Jesus, the King of the Jews, his response was to kill all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger. Why? Because the, that king of the earth was unwilling to give up his throne. That's why why he wanted to snuff out Jesus. 
But see, I think that's the point. And this gets back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago. If you're reading these words while sitting in exile under the thumb of foreign kings, then you are hearing words of hope, words of promise, and words of salvation. And as we look at our lives, what we see is a picture that is made up of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what this psalm is promising is that both the bad and the ugly are going to one day be reversed so that they are actually instruments used to bring praise and honor and glory to Almighty God. Because one day, everything sad will become untrue because God is setting the world to rights. The bad and the ugly will be reversed, and the good that we experience, that, that is a foretaste of what is to come. It is a foretaste of what is to come. This is why I said, as we started dipping our toe into this psalm, that there are these promises of new creation embedded in the text. Because as we read those words, that list of things that that the psalmist is commanding to worship God, we know that those things will not, of their own volition, bring honor and glory to God. They, they, They won't. Oh, but God has the last word. God has the last word. And so he says in verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? What's the answer here? Again, that word for, let them praise the name of the Lord because his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So the first reason the psalmist is calling for praise from the earth is because God, just because of his sheer existence, is worthy of praise. And also, notice there's some royal language being used to to talk about Yahweh, his majesty. Because, Because his majesty, it outshines all the majesty that every single king of the earth and prince or ruler ever possessed and ever will possess. But the psalmist isn't a fool. He knows that the bad and the ugly have no intentions of praising Yahweh. The kings of the earth, as I mentioned before, as we've seen throughout human history, as we read about throughout the pages of Scripture, they love their power, they love their authority, and they have no intention of giving it up. They don't. In fact, most of us, when we get a taste of power and authority, we have no intention of ever giving it up. We like to be in charge. We like to rule. But check out what it says in verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. He has raised up a horn for his people. In the story of the Exodus, Moses went back to Pharaoh time after time. He demonstrated the power and majesty of Yahweh over and over again. And Pharaoh, time after time and over and over again, refuses to acknowledge God. When it says that he raised up a horn for his people, that is a symbol of victory. That is a symbol of victory. It comes from the image of a bull lifting up its horns after winning a battle. And throughout Scripture, it is associated with the weak 
and the marginalized being freed from oppression. That's where you'll find it. If you do a word search on horn, that shows up almost all the time, except if it's literally talking about a ram's horn. But in the context of God raising up a horn for salvation, nine times out of ten, it's talking about the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed, that God has their back. After John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, prophesied, and this is what he said in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79, and I have a slide for this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's talking about John the Baptist now. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The horn being raised up as the reason and foundation of the psalmist's command for us to praise Yahweh, that horn is Jesus the Christ. That horn is Jesus the Christ who was literally lifted up on the cross, who freed us from oppression of sin and death. And it is because of that freedom, because of that victory, that the psalmist cries out, Worship Yahweh. Worship Yahweh. The salvation of our God is the foundation for praise. Our freedom from sin, our rescue from death, our, our, the, the incredible grace that God has lavished upon us, that is the reason why we worship him. That is the reason why we worship him. And one day, that salvation will be made complete. And one day, the bad and the ugly will be reversed and used in the hands of Almighty God to, to bring honor and glory to his name. And all the good stuff we experience in this life will finally, like that, make sense. Like, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what marriage was to be about. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, that's what it means when every good and perfect gift comes from God. It, all of that stuff, it's meant to draw our gaze upward and to worship. It's all a foretaste of eternity, of the new heavens and the new earth. That's where everything's headed, guys. That's where we're going. That's what this psalm is trying to, 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 to just nail into our brains right now. Worship God because he saved you. Worship God because his grace is that amazing. And it's because of that victory 
that those of us sitting in exile, sitting on this side of glory, awaiting the full realization of God's kingdom to come, that we can wait in hope. That we can wait in hope. That we don't have to walk through this life in despair when we see the kings of this earth and the rulers of this earth wreaking havoc on the innocent. It's why we can still worship and walk in faithfulness regardless of what we read in the news or on our Twitter feeds or X feeds, I guess, right? It's why we can still have hope, even if our candidate doesn't win, whoever that candidate might be. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus sits on the throne. And like that's not just like a, like a, a pithy little saying. When, when the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, what they're saying is Caesar is not. Okay? And that is good news. Like, that's the gospel, right? Like, often I think we, we, we imagine that the gospel is, is, is my forgiveness of sins. That's like a byproduct of the gospel. The gospel, the good news that, that people are, are declaring all over the world is that, is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. And because he's Lord and how he became Lord through death, burial, resurrection, ascension is the reason why we can have forgiveness of sins so that we can participate in his lordship. But Jesus is Lord is the good news that's being proclaimed all over the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire back in the first century. That's good news. And if Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, that means every other ruler also is not. That means every other national sort of pride we have, whatever pride we might have, like it's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Worship him. This psalm commands us to worship Yahweh. And we can either willingly submit to that now or we can be forced to on the day of judgment. But whatever the case at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 148 commands us to worship. And before we close, I want to talk about what that actually means. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. For some reason, this passage has been on my mind all week. I talked about it with my students at Ambassador. I shared it with the students at Redeemer Youth on Thursday night. And now I'm talking about it with all of you. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or logical worship. You can translate it either way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is urging us to worship God because of everything that he has done for us. That's what that word therefore means at the beginning of Romans 12. It's this giant arrow pointing back to the entire book of Romans, which is the story of God's salvation. And Paul is telling us to remember 
our salvation, to remember what God has done for us in and through Jesus. And if we remember that, if we can contemplate even a morsel of what God has done, then the only reasonable response is to worship God with all of our lives. It's the only rational response to what God has done. That's what it means when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And the way we do that is summed up in the greatest commandment to love both God and neighbor. That's the point. If you are a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then it is because God has saved you and freed you from oppression and enslavement to sin and death. Therefore, go out and do likewise to the world around you. And if God gives you the opportunity, which he will, tell people of the hope that is within you. Tell them why. Tell them why you choose to live a life marked by the cross in serving others. And the why is because Jesus died for our sins and he is Lord. That's what Psalm 148 is getting at. That's what the entire book of Psalms is driving towards, this final day of salvation. That's the entire story of the Bible, the finalization of our salvation in Christ. And when we read about that in, in the book of Revelation, when, when, when the new heavens and the new earth come down, man, that's what we're longing for. And we have this beautiful opportunity to gain a foretaste of that as we, we live our lives um, in this world, caring for our neighbors, caring for one another, reminding each other of the gospel, binding up the broken not allowing those, those bruised reeds and, and smoldering wicks to be snuffed out, but creating a space of safety for people where they feel welcome. Right? This is what it's all, like, I know I preach the same sermon every week. The reason why is because it shows up in the text every single time, every single time. Why? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So therefore, I'm going to preach the same sermon yesterday, today, and forever. Love God and love neighbor because God has saved you in Christ. That's why. So that's, that's the whole point. That's all I got this morning. So let's pray. And we'll jump into the Lord's table. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Father, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, this is the true story of the world. Thank you for it. Thank you that you have called us into your presence, that you've made us sons and daughters. You've adopted us, Lord God. You've cleansed us from all of our sin, Lord God. You've given us a new path to walk on. And even right now as we speak, Lord, we're seated in the heavenly places. Father, we pray that your will be done, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, Lord God. That we would get more and more of a foretaste of what eternity will be, of what new creation will be. 
Lord, that as, as people come to faith here, as people are drawn into deeper communion with you, as, as people experience your kingdom here, Father, I pray that that, that, that that would be so true of Redeemer Fellowship. God, we're begging you for that, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that next week we get to celebrate three people walking in obedience into the waters of baptism, Lord God. This picture of what you have accomplished, Lord God, in their lives, Lord God. And as a reminder to all of us, Lord God, of what you have accomplished in our lives. Let us not just come to the waters of baptism next week to celebrate what's happening in others' lives, but to remember also what has happened in our lives, Lord God. How you rescued us from the pit and you raised us up with your son Jesus, Lord God. God, I pray that as we come to the table, Lord, that this would be an opportunity for us not only to remember but to have deep communion with you, to experience your presence, Lord God, to receive your grace. Lord God, we love you with all of our hearts. We truly, truly do. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the spirit who walks with us and convicts us and, and, and encourages us and nourishes us, Lord. Thank you for all that you give, Lord God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.